This is Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. When I was growing up, kids wanted to be... Astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the Union world, part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives, they all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. The people, places, Scraps and scrapes, heroes and villains, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life itself, and I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? You might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will, though we have changed some names and other details. Let's get started. It's 1990. I'm the National Officer responsible for health and safety at the National Communications Union, representing members working in telecoms, posts and financial services. Around the time I landed on the health and safety patch, green issues started to make an impact. Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace were forcing themselves onto the agenda in a new way. Perhaps it was a generational thing. Most likely, it was a combination, a confluence of time, place, circumstance and ideas. Sheffield was the place where a green shoot germinated and became the standard bearer for our union's environmental policy. This development seemed to make total sense to me. How can you truly be said to understand and look after the health, safety and welfare considerations of your members, even under the constraints of legislation, if the impact on and influence of the environment are not embraced? There was no question at all that this was a trade union issue and firmly on the negotiating agenda, not least because it was all about priorities and resources. It was clear to me that this new area of activity fell onto my patch. It couldn't really fit sensibly anywhere else. It also helpfully meant that my unilaterally adopted new title, Health, Safety, Environment, created the same acronym as the then Enforcement Authority, the Health and Safety Executive. But despite the Sheffield resolution, there was still much to do and room for extensive misunderstanding. I was literally and quite painfully kicked under the negotiating table by one of my own side, albeit an official from a different union at the time, for suggesting to Royal Mail Management that they should surcharge so-called direct mail campaigns in order to depress the demand for this, in my view, environmentally unfriendly practice. So, first job on this new agenda was to carry through an instruction to convene a green conference to engage activists in this new area, or newly defined area, of work. Second, inextricably linked, was to have something new to say to said activists and the outside world in general about what this initiative and innovation was going to look like practically. We hired a room at the London School of Economics, a clear nod to radical thought and progressive campaigning. But the hall was dusty and the catering poor. Perhaps that too was in the LSE tradition. We drew a sizable crowd. Looking back at the conference programme, 
I'm taken at just how many reps made the effort to be there from so many of our local branches that in later years would disappear under an inexorable pressure to merge and rationalise. Top-notch speakers too, including Jonathan Porritt, at the time director of the Friends of the Earth and arguably the most recognisable, visible green advocate. What was clear is that colleagues from Sheffield hadn't in any way pulled a fast one in persuading our conference, the Parliament of the Union, to go green. There was already a real weight of support for what we were now seriously embarking upon. But as the conference approached, I was still in head-scratching mode over that elusive key announcement that the day could hang around. If I'd have been older and wiser, I don't suppose this would have been so much of a concern. There is an effective template for one-day gatherings that leaves everyone feeling enlightened and satisfied. But I just hadn't got there yet in terms of my own development. Even if I had to be honest, a big reveal is still a hefty cherry on the cake. I had to think about what was needed to be effective. Something that could be readily understood for sure. Something that everyone could get involved in, something that would make a positive practical difference, something that wasn't just a one-off, and something that could have a wider resonance outside our own union. At the time, the concept of polluter pays, whereby if you make an environmental mess and you can't stop what you're doing, then you pay for the clean-up or cleansing, was still developing. But the phrase and the concept were well enough known. I had just finished delivering a training module on the COSH regulations, that's the control of substances hazardous to health. You could argue these regulations were inevitably green because bad air, water, whatever, are clearly detrimental to one's well-being. Could argue. Well, we did argue, but to no avail. There was a split, clearly a disconnect. There was a different approach being taken with substances hazardous to health than there was with substances and things that were environmentally damaging. I don't think this was conceptual or philosophical. It was all about money. Oh, it will cost too much to be green. Or going green will cost jobs. Or it will make industry uncompetitive. Notions of a just transition were sadly many, many years off. But given the split existed, we needed to go with that particular grain and not bang our heads on a brick wall against it. In years of organising and recruitment work, that approach is something I've found always to be true. You need to go to where people are, not where you want them to be. Not all situations lend themselves to revolutionary innovation or spectacular leaps forward, and that was certainly the case here. The Kosh training material leered up at me, and a metaphorical penny dropped. If I replaced all references to substances hazardous to health with environmentally damaging substances, would it still make sense? In a word, the answer was yes, Bingo! Our conference saw the launch of the campaign for COEDS, Control of Environmentally Damaging Substances. One consequence of tying together Elf and Safety with campaigning on environmental issues is that it tapped into a large, established and motivated activist base. This was crucially important in giving the issue some momentum when politicians and employers were so far behind the curve. Their reluctance or resistance could not be a barrier to our reps going forward with our policy. I like to think that we were part of a growing impetus for change, a contribution to an alliance within the labour movement and then across a widening political spectrum. The notion of environmental audits, a sustainability culture, a community of interest that can be traced back to co-eds and a myriad of similar initiatives, but are now largely embedded in the mainstream political thought and international agreements struck in Kyoto and Paris. 
It doesn't mean it's a case of mission accomplished, of course. There is still no legal basis for green reps to mirror union safety reps. The idea of a just transition, where the migration to a sustainable economy includes secure employment, fair distribution of cost and meaningful dialogue between social partners, is struggling to find a way into everyday, intuitive, strategic, corporate and political planning. And the international consensus underpinning agreements like that reached at and named after Paris seem fragile and far off, especially given what has to be regarded as a disappointing COP26 in the autumn of 2021. So what can we apply today from this experience? Well, health and safety is just as important as it ever was. New industries, new technology, same risk, same jeopardy to workers and business and increasingly the environment. The front line, though, has moved. It is now harder to always know where responsibility, culpability, liability lies. I think there are three main reasons for this. First, the economy is increasingly global and networked. Corporate structures and thus identification of who is or was the controlling mind behind any particular decision are complicated to the point of being opaque. Second, avoidance of liability is now a sophisticated device, widely deployed. Uber and Deliveroo set themselves up as being utterly committed to workers being self-employed, thereby avoiding liability for certain employer costs. UK court rulings have now declared some Uber drivers to be workers. And we are talking serious money here, with Uber having splashed out over $200 million to protect their position on employment rights during a recent poll in California. I've also seen health and safety policy documents in which companies in PFI contracts assert their absolution from liability. Well, sorry guys, just because you say this, it does not make it necessarily true. Unseemly, distasteful rows over who bears responsibility is not a universal culture. But from the tragedies of Deepwater Horizon in 2010 to Grenfell Tower seven years later, the problem of designed-in liability avoidance is not diminishing, it seems. And third, the ability to patrol and police what is going on has arguably got less. Lower union density means fewer union safety reps. Appointed safety reps who take up this role in non-union workplaces are better than none. But as they sit outside the structure of accountability, training and support, they cannot be the same. The nature of workplaces themselves has changed, with a decisive shift towards an economy dominated by small and medium-sized enterprises. And there is a financial squeeze as well, which means less resource, less inspection, less research, less time. That's not universally true either, of course, but it does often feel that good workplaces arise in the face of a load of contrary forces, rather than because of a globalised economy ultra-competitive markets and opaque corporate responsibility. On the other hand, transparency, partly led by digital and social media, continues to have a significant impact. Now, anyone with a smartphone and an internet connection can broadcast to the world and promote an agenda. Put simply, even with the attempts to dilute net neutrality in the US, there should be far, far fewer places in which bad things can hide. For me, The best guarantor of good work and good workplaces is a matter of forethought. This applies as much if your markers are environmental sustainability and low levels of workplace injuries or sick leave as it does to anything else. Actually, as it does to everything else. 
It's all very well being switched on to sustainability or safe systems of work when you are surrounded by enthusiasts or there is a situation right in your face. But I believe we need to keep that level of focus at all times, to pay close attention to these things when we are no longer in the room. This really isn't a massive, shocking revelation. It's much more basic, more fundamental than that. It really is a bread and butter issue. Next time on Union Days, the misunderstood and the miscreant. Meet the members who ended up on the wrong end of misconduct charges, how union intervention saved many of their jobs, and why some cases defied all attempts at resolution. You've never heard anything like it. Don't miss the next Union Days. This has been Union Days, scenes from a union scrapbook with me, Simon Sapper. Music is by Scott Holmes. Production by Makes You Think. Subscribe, rate and review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can email the show at info at makesyouthink.com. Thanks for listening.